Hey all, just a few announcements before we get started. If uh, you are interested in podcasts on impact investing, make sure to check out Impact Leaders by J.P. Dahlman. I'm actually on uh, one of the most recent episodes, episode 53, and J.P. and I have a lot of overlap in our podcast um, style, format, content, um, yet we have uh, there's been very few guests that we have overlap uh, between. So it's a nice way to kind of expand your uh, horizons and uh, coverage and content um, on this topic. It's Impact Leaders with J.P. Dahlman, and you can catch it anywhere you get your podcasts. Um, episode 53, I think, is the one with me. Also, uh, just a reminder, we're hosting the giveaway for a $500 Impact Investing gift pack, which includes a $250 gift uh, certificate to Patagonia and a one-hour responsible investment coaching call with me. Uh, We can talk about how you can clean up your portfolio and make some recommendations to improve it from an impact perspective. And uh, two books. So please uh, check it out, davidoleary.ca slash giveaway. Lastly, there's a cool job opportunity on the Growth Impact Fund. They're looking for an investment advisory committee member that will sit on the committee and help them make investment decisions. And the Growth Impact Fund, or GIF, is a partnership between two leading social sector organizations, which include a Big Issue Investment Fund Management and Unlimited, the Foundation for Social Entrepreneurs. Uh, it's, these are based in the UK. And uh, if you're interested in that uh, and can't find it by Googling it, you can feel free to email me, dave at davidoleary.ca, and I'll help you find it. And lastly, if you haven't already heard, I'm building an infographic that's mapping out the Canadian impact investment landscape. If you, I'd love for you to help contribute to it. Uh, there's a form that you can send around to any organization that would want to be included on the infographic. And if you've got any feedback for, uh, for me, I'd love to hear it. Uh, you can visit davidoleary.ca slash infographic to access the form and read more information about it. With that, let's get onto the podcast. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. I'm your host, David O'Leary. I'm a reformed free market capitalist who now spends his time trying to harness the power of the markets for good. And I started this podcast for anyone who wants to join me as I explore the world at the intersection of purpose and profit. In a meeting hosted by the Rockefeller Foundation in Italy in 2007, the term impact investing was first coined. Yet, seven years prior to that, in 2001, Sir Ronald Cohen, just Ronald Cohen at the time, was requested by the UK Treasury to establish the Social Investment Task Force, or SITF. The SITF was tasked with exploring the ways in which the UK could create wealth, spur economic growth, and improve the lives of its most vulnerable people at the same time. And it was his work here where he and his colleagues developed much of their thinking on impact investing. Only a year after establishing the SITF, Ronnie, as he prefers to be called, would become Sir Ronnie, not for his work in impact investing, but for his three decades of work essentially bringing venture capital to the UK. Ronnie was only 26 years old when he co-founded Apex Partners, a private equity firm that would grow to manage $50 billion in assets with offices across the globe. 
By 2013, then-Prime Minister David Cameron asked Ronnie to lead the G8 Social Investment Task Force in order to catalyze a global market in social impact investment. Not long after that, he was then asked by the British government to lead an effort to expand the G8 Social Investment Task Force further globally, and this resulted in him establishing the Global Steering Group for Impact Investment, or GSG, in 2015. And during this time, Sir Ronnie also contributed to creating the world's first social impact bond, which aimed to reduce recidivism rates at the Peterborough Penitentiary in the UK. He and his colleagues' findings on SIBs were articulated in a now-famous report, Impact Investment, the Invisible Heart of the Markets, which kicked off a movement to spread the idea of impact investing across the globe. All of that amounts to one hell of an impressive career by any standard, but especially for a refugee who fled Egypt as a result of the Suez Crisis in the 1950s. At 11 years old, Ronnie and his parents arrived in the UK with just a single suitcase each, and Ronnie clutching his precious stamp collection in his arms for fear that it had been taken away. Therefore, it is my great honor to welcome Sir Ronald Cohen to the podcast. Ronnie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. I'm really excited to have you here. Likewise, David, to be chatting with you. Yeah, we're going to be talking about your new book. I, I've been excited to have you on for, for a while now as somebody who's been in the impact investing space for, call it five, six years. So you're a name that you can't avoid in this space and you've done so much to contribute to it that it's uh, really an honor to have you on the podcast here. And the book itself, I was telling you beforehand, is uh, it's just such a great resource for, for those getting in the industry. I've, I spent five, six years wrestling with a lot of the terms and concepts and getting my head around things. And your book in a very short period does a really great job of synthesizing a lot of what I've been wrestling with. So thank you for writing this. Thank you. It's wonderful to hear your positive reaction to it. Yeah. So I'm curious what, I'm surprised that you hadn't already written a, a book on impact investing already and, and what took you so long and, and why now? I wrote a book about entrepreneurship when I left uh, Apex, which is the company I co-founded and led. That came out in 2007. And the last chapter of that book, which was uh, uh, called uh, The Second Bounce of the Book, is still in circulation, I'm glad to say dealt with these changes that were coming to the investment world. And I said at the time that I could feel that change and that it would, uh, it would express itself as a, a new asset class. And then as I got increasingly involved in impact investment, I began to realize that the whole world was going in this direction. So we had we invented the social impact bond in 2010, three years after the second bounce of the ball appeared. And it was the first time we had a security whose return depended on the social improvement. And that sounded like a major innovation for the NGO sector, for businesses that had purpose built into uh, their DNA. But with time, I began to realize that when you looked at the ESG flows, when you looked at the impact investment flows, which are ESG plus impact measurement, the whole world was going in the direction the impact bond had signposted, which is our economies were shifting to risk, return, and impact. It's what investors wanted. 
consumers were changing their purchasing habits to take impact into account. Talent was taking impact into account when deciding who to work for. And I began to realize that it was the only way to change the behavior of companies that were polluting or creating social problems. And I thought so many people misunderstand the term impact. We need to give it its true meaning. It isn't a branch of philanthropy. It isn't even a branch of investment. It's where all investment is going. Yeah, it's interesting. I think about it, as you point out just now and in the book more fully, is it, it's not even just investment. It's, a, it's all of our actions. It's our choices have consequences, whether that's our spending choices, our donations, our investments, our, our behaviors on the street, whether we pollute or not. And I think we've been operating in a way that we've, in some regards, we're very aware if you throw garbage on the street, we've known for a long time, this, we're polluting. This is a bad thing to do. But the, those indirect impacts through our spending choices and our investment choices haven't been as obvious to people. And we've been operating as if without any regard for the impact that we have. I, I equate it to as if we were just all walking down the street, throwing our garbage wherever we wanted to, screaming and yelling as we wished without any regard for yeah. the impact that had on those around us. And that's how we've been really operating from a spending and, and an investing um, perspective for a while. So this, as you, I think, pointed out in the book, is this is overdue. Can you talk a little bit about you? I don't want to, I want to bring out some of the themes of the book without spoiling it for the readers. I do want to point out that I'd love for people to buy the book because you are donating the proceeds from this to some worthy causes. So do go out and buy it. I am giving away one uh, copy of the book to a, a winner. We've got a, a giveaway going on. So if anybody's interested in potentially winning a copy of the book, you can visit my website, davidoleary.ca slash giveaway. There's a few other prizes in that pack. I'd love for you to enter that contest. But the, you talk about, you. the book is structured, largely speaking, for you're introducing this impact revolution. What is it? How does it work? How do you see it going? And then you break down the different stakeholder groups and talk about what's happening in that, how that impact revolution is impacting each of them and the connections between them. Can you maybe just talk a little bit about the arc of the, the, the book? Yeah. Yeah. The arc of the book is this theme that the risk return impact needs to be now the DNA of our financial investment and economic system. And that because of this necessity, the world is already going in this direction that you can see it, as we were saying in uh, the ESG flows of $40 trillion or more in the new types of ventures like Tesla that had both a profit and an impact objective in the case of Tesla shifting us away from the polluting combustion engine. You could see it at some big businesses like Ikea and Adidas and Chobani and Danone and Unilever, where they're trying to deliver positive product impact or positive employment impact or positive operational impact on the environment. And so this has already happened. And what is going to be the equivalent of the microchip in the tech revolution, in the impact revolution, is transparency on impact. 
It's going to be the publication of financial accounts that take all these different impacts and turn them into monetary terms. And, and this is what I've been involved in doing at Harvard Business School in the Impact Weighted Accounts Initiative. And I'm a firm believer, David, that this transparency is only three to five years away from us. Hmm. It isn't decades away, and I can explain, explain why. So that's the arc of the book. The world is shifting there. It's shifting there out of necessity, not out of choice. We have one major tool that uh, is going to bring order to the greenwashing that we see and the claims made by companies which are not corroborated and, and so on. And it's the mandatory publication of audited impact numbers. Yeah, so that's, you talk throughout the book, and I'm, I love that there's so much focus on it, is on the impact measurement. You touched just now on the impact weighted accounts. Let's just dive into that now, because it's so, I think, important to your to the revolution you're talking about. And, and so, to be clear, what we're talking about here is there needs to be, a, a, a way to measure impact objectively, and then B, make that transparent. So maybe just touch on and dive into this topic a little bit further. Yeah. So if you go to the site at Harvard Business School called IWA, Impact Weighted Accounts, you will see that David, 3,000 companies, environmental impacts from their operations in dollar terms. So what we've done there is we've taken the metrics made public by these companies about tons of CO2, millions of liters of, of water, and so on, and we have created paths to monetization. What should a ton of cost? And, and so there are reports there showing how we've done all of this. Now, it gives you unbelievable new insights, like, 450 out of the 3,000 companies whose numbers you'll see create more environmental damage in the year than they do. And then 1,000 create environmental damage equivalent to a quarter or more of their profit. So you're left with two-thirds of companies creating less than a quarter of their profit in damage each year. So they can handle it. They can transition out of it. Uh, what is, what's also very interesting about this data is it shows that these companies create $4 trillion of damage in a year. So when we're talking of improving climate change and governments are talking with one another, they're ignoring the fact that it's companies which are creating the, the pollution. Now, where does the solution lie? The solution also lies in the data, in the sense that you could see now a correlation already exists between higher levels of pollution and lower stock market valuations. So the companies that are polluting more are worth less than their competitors. And what that says, David, is Impact data has become price stock price sensitive. And so regulators are going to have to step in 
which is why I'm talking of three to five years, are going to have to step in to make sure all shareholders, all investors get access to the same data on a verified basis or a comparable basis at the same time. Yeah, it's interesting. So I uh, agree that even as a as an investor, as a consumer, it's so difficult as it stands now to make informed decisions about the the risk reward impact trade-off and and or price value trade-off if we're talking about consumer consumerism. And so if I think about even as just my day-to-day life, how much uh, is it going to benefit the environment or society or whatever the wherever that impact is felt if I choose not to drive a car versus cut meat out of my diet or whatever the case is. And so some of those actions are more difficult than others to take. And so you're really, as, as somebody who thinks about it from a practical lens, I'd really like to know, like, where am I going to get the biggest bang for my buck? And I'm going to really try to cut those things out, especially where, for me, the, the, that's not a big deal to, to make that change. And in the investment world, it's you've got your risk return and then impact spectrum. And, and without that impact data, you can't factor that in. So I agree, agree that this is just absolutely essential. You see this impacting all stakeholder groups, don't you? Not just investors or big business. Is that fair to say? No, no I, I see that um, impacting consumers in the sense that uh, we're seeing now apps. There's one in France being used by 21 million people, an app oh. called Yucca, Y-U-K-A, which uh, enables you to understand the impact of a product in the cosmetics or food industries. And I think it's going to be part of our lives. We're going to very soon have very sophisticated apps accessing the data emerging from Harvard and and elsewhere, eventually from um, impact-weighted accounts, showing consumers what positive and negative impacts of product and the company that brings it to our shows uh, create. So I see it there. I see it with talent. I think talent is interested in understanding not just the mission that the company begins to advertise, but what it's actually doing to achieve that mission. And unless you have measurement, you can't uh, gauge your, your performance in a reliable way. I see it for investors, of course, because I think we're going to see a correlation between the companies that have better employment practices, products that deliver positive impact, operations that create less uh, damage, and future growth and profitability, because they'll be the ones that can attract the best talent, the best investors, and the most loyal uh, consumers, and I see it as impacting government. We're already beginning to talk of carbon tax. Why? Because we have enough data now that this metric of tons of carbon has become accepted. When we bring impact transparency across all the impacts of companies, you can shift to a fairer tax system, culture David, where you tax companies for the harm they create, not taxing everyone for the harm some create primarily. Yeah, it just seems to be to essentially drag the, all these externalities back into the equation 
bring it into the light. And sunlight is the best disinfectant. And if we know what damage is being caused, we can then, as you say, tax them, punish them, whatever the case is, avoid them. Do you, and I, you talk about in the book too, how I, I love the comparable because the, I think even folks in the impact investing space talk about the difficulty of quantifying impact. And I think there's a lot of folks who would say, it's really hard to put a dollar value on some of the impacts that are that, that, you know, that we have. And I'll give you my thoughts and I'd love to hear yours. I think while that is true, it doesn't mean to say we can't try. And you point out in the book how you know, people before Gap was a thing in the first half of the you know, 1900s, it was people didn't think that could be done. And Gap are the generally accepted accounting principles, and you have to make some judgments about how we're going to define things. And so they're not always going to be perfect, but at least they're standardized. Is that kind of yeah. how you weigh in on that? Well, yeah, totally. And you had people then saying, even if Gap is possible, and how can you manage to have the same accounting principles for every company irrespective of size and sector? But even assuming you manage to publish gap accounts for everyone, it's going to spell the end of American capitalism. You know, and now you look at our financial markets and you realize this transparency on profit is the foundation for huge capital markets. Because investors can trust the information they have. And today, we like that transparency on impact. And so, in a way, the Biden administration is at the same crossroads that the Roosevelt administration was at after mm -hmm. the crash of 19, after the COVID-19 market crash. <clears throat> the Biden administration, too, has to act boldly. And covid has shaken our habits and beliefs, opened our minds to thinking differently, got us used to using technology in, in completely different ways. And it's created, a, I think, a sense that we need big changes now to improve the situation on climate and on social cohesion through increased diversity in particular. Yeah. I'm wondering, one of the things that I bump into still in the in investment circles, and I'm curious what you experience and how you respond to it if you come across this, is is the traditional you know, free market capitalist uh, institutional investor who's been well-schooled and indoctrinated in modern portfolio theory and efficient markets and, and all that. What, talk about, I was listening, my the podcast I published yesterday was with an author who's tackling kind of modern portfolio theory and challenging some of the assumptions. But uh, we were listening to a, a podcast where they're talking about, you know, th what we're seeing, what they would argue is what we're seeing is a, cha a, a changing preferences of consumers and investors. And so you are seeing this sort of bump in returns for let's call them green companies versus brown companies. And that's happening when that shift in that change of preferences largely plays itself out, you'll eventually get to a point where brown firms will have to pay higher returns to investors because they are greater risk. And the market will have fully priced in the expectation that green firms are better and that they're better for the environment. And so they will necessarily produce lower returns. And so you still get this. Sure, you can ride this little bit of wave for a while, but eventually it's not going to pay to be a green investor. You should just be... Anyway, we could talk about that a little bit more. But how do you deal with that objection. So, so I, I think you have to look at the world from higher up. 
and, and, and realize that this change in values is one out of three major forces that are really working to improve our world. The second force is the force of technology. The leaps that technology has taken now with artificial intelligence and machine learning, augmented reality, the genome and computing coming together, enable us to deliver impact that improves lives and the environment in ways humanity could never contemplate before. Mm. Okay. That's the second force. The third force is that this technology enables us to measure the impact of companies in a very transparent way, in the same unit of measurement for social and environmental impact and profit, which is money. Okay. Now, when you take these three things together, you realize that the green companies and the companies with better labor practices are going to be the most profitable in the future. They're going to find it easiest to get the customers, to get the investors and to get the talent. And the disruption that technology brought through the microchip is going to be replicated, as I was saying, by the disruption using technology, which new business models are going to bring to established models in the area of impact. So. If let's say you're, you're currently investing in the field of finance, you look at the traditional banking model, it gives a very hard deal, uh, to the most vulnerable, right? They, uh, they find it very difficult to get accounts open. If they have them open and they end up in overdraft, it's the most expensive form of finance that you could have, but they, they get booked on it and they can't escape it and they find, and the vulnerable find it extremely difficult to get any other form of borrow. Now you're beginning to get fintech platforms created by entrepreneurs who want to achieve positive, uh, social impact by bringing the unbanked into the world of finance. And so they're approaching risk in a completely different way, unthinkable just a few years ago, uh, and that is on the basis of phone usage, trying to judge the personality and reliability of a borrower according to their use of their phone. And that's right. one of the companies that I describe in, in the book, as you know, a company called Tunnel. So impact is going to revolutionize business models. You're going to get entrepreneurs like Elon Musk who find an issue they're passionate about and create a business model where they deliver profit in lockstep with impact. The greater impact they deliver, the greater the profit they do. And now you, you can see how the digital revolution helps you to create massive companies with completely new business models, because if you deliver education digitally, you don't have bricks and mortar and so on. You can afford to provide it free to the uneducated who pay you back when they've got into a job. Mm -hmm. So you're beginning to see new innovative models coming.
to challenge the existing models in, in unbelievable new ways. And we're going to find the same thing happening in every area, in education, in health, in energy, in finance. What happened with technology alone is now going to happen with technology and impact together. Yeah, we were, uh, one of the things we worked on at World Vision, and there's another organization, uh, there's a bunch I'm sure doing it across the globe, but another one here in, in Canada that I'm familiar with called Brighter Investments, that we're essentially working in you know, vulnerable communities to finance youth education, give them skills that allow them to get a job. And then when they get the, get a job and they're earning income, they can pay back that effectively that loan. And so you can you know utilize yeah. investment capital. So it's a great example of these kind of innovative yeah. You have financial structures that allow it, but then you're also saying then the technology enables you to deliver it a lot more efficiently and yeah. effectively. Yeah, and, and you find that I see it coming at me from every direction, everywhere in the world. You yeah. find people who invent a new concrete that you yeah. can use when you're building structures in the sea and that turn into reefs in right. order to find a reef. You can find it in the payroll world where new companies are coming along and generating data and, and organizing payroll. But the data isn't just about how much you're paying. It's also giving you a sense of how you're paying relative to your competitors, of, of what uh, differences exist in gender pay and ethnic pay, in gender and ethnic advancement. You know, and I see it everywhere where previously you would have had a company, um, creating software to manage public transport. Today, it's doing that and measuring the commuting time that you save, uh, the carbon emissions that you reduce, the improvement in the lives of the drivers because they work shorter hours, because they're better organized, the, the reduction in the number of accidents. And a boardroom in 2030, David, is going to have its discussions around both its financial accounts and its impact weighted accounts. And its financial strategy and its business strategy are both going to be based around impact. Yeah. Can you, can you maybe just for those listening who haven't read the book, you give a great example of impact weighted accounts in the example of Coke versus Pepsi. You don't have to use that example if you don't want to, but just give a, like a tangible example of what an impact weighted account will allow somebody to, to do in terms of an. Yeah. So imagine you look at a company like Coke and Pepsi and you realize that Pepsi is a lot bigger, but through its water usage, Pepsi creates two and a half billion dollars of damage to the environment and Coke with much smaller sales creates twice damage. Now, when you look at the profit of that company on an impact-weighted basis, this is going to be a chance to the profit. The impact-weighted profit of Coke is going to be lower proportionately than Pepsi's. Then you add the employment effect. You measure the diversity. We're about to publish several thousand companies' employment impact, measuring diversity, advancement, differences in pay and so on. You look at each of them, and you're going to have positive and negative impacts from employment. And then you look at their product impact, their sugar content to the other chemicals that they include, and you'll measure that. Now, sugar content 
is a major health hazard today. You take another company like Danone. Danone has $8 billion of environmental damage through use of its products every year because of sugar content. Mm. Okay. It makes 5 billion pre-tax profit a year. Okay. So you compare that with Nestle or with General Mills or with Kellogg's and you're going to see which company is actually doing the best job of looking after the health of its customers while making a profit. And I think to answer your question in the most granular detail, we're going to see PE ratios, price earnings ratios of listed companies on the basis of impact weighted earnings per share. Already Danone, as it happens, published its impact carbon weighted earnings per share last year. We're going to see these new ways of measuring the profitability of companies, and then we're going to measure a correlation with the future earnings. Do the companies which do the best job of optimizing risk return and impact actually grow the fastest Mm -hmm. and have the best margins at the end of the day? Yeah. Yeah. So I just can't imagine a world in which in the future, 10 years from now, people are going to care less about (laughs) the impacts that their investments or their spending choices are having, that business is having. Uh, So I think that's really well. Can you talk about, how do you see, like uh, you mentioned technology is one of these driving factors that's enabling and propelling the the impact revolution. But on the other hand, it is also potentially threatening to further kind of undermine vulnerable, large chunks of society who are in jobs that are like firmly in the crosshairs of the types of things, repetitive tasks that technology will easily replace. How do you see that kind of playing out in the impact investment revolution? So I think impact investment can help hugely in reskilling people for new jobs. Like through the tech revolution, the figures I saw showed that over 25 years, 50 million jobs had been lost in smokestack industries at 60 million had been created in new tech industries. And of course, people didn't have the skills when they were coal miners to become a, a coder. And today we can anticipate that the pace of change is going to accelerate even more. So the shift from fossil fuels to clean energy is, I've heard it said, going to lead to the loss of 80 million jobs over time in fossil fuel industries. We're going to have to create jobs elsewhere. And so the idea that you just have your education, whatever it is, uh, and then sit on it for the whole of your life is going to be gone. We need now to trade people for jobs in the clean energy space and in the new areas that are developing as these new impact models are being um, developed. And so I believe coming out of COVID with higher unemployment, with huge government debt on government balance sheets, we have to break the impact investment flows and the entrepreneurship and innovation and, and the behavior of big companies to deliver this innovation and therefore to recruit people who have the appropriate uh, skills on the way to doing that. 
And so impact investment flows can begin to fund the reskilling. Now, when the idea of the social impact bond, which we developed in 2010, came along of linking in that, in the case of the first one, a reduction in the number of prisoners going to jail, which is over 60% for young prisoners within, within 18 months of their release to a financial return. The idea of pay for success in interfinancial markets. Now you look at the bond market today, $159 billion of pay for success bonds, where a company like NL, the Italian public utility raises $7 billion where the interest rate falls if it achieves certain environmental targets. A company like Novartis, a pharmaceutical company, issues 1.8 billion euros of bonds, and the interest rate again falls if their drugs reach the most vulnerable populations. Impact begins to guide investment flows. That's why I call it the invisible heart of markets guiding its invisible hand. I love that. Maybe let's talk a little bit about the impact bond space. I have episode number five of this podcast. We, we talked about uh, social impact bonds and a little bit about development impact bonds. I had a little bit of experience through, through World Vision on the kangaroo mother care development impact bond, which was essentially looking at rolling out this kind of intervention that were infant babies to really improve the rates of survival in developing world contexts. And I, what I've, the limited experience that I had through that, through that experience was that it, that they are complex instruments and the number of parties involved and the, you know, impact measurement side of the equation. How do you, how do you define the impact and then link that to the, the returns is, is challenging. Can you Maybe talk about your experience. Of me. You're the you were deeply involved in the very first SIB ever. So I'd love to hear your perspective. So my perspective is that everything else you need standardization and scale. Yeah. For these things to grow very fast. Now we've had over two hundred now in development impact bonds in thirty-five countries tackling 15 different social issues. The era of experimentation is over. Mm. We're into the era of scale. Now, what has prevented them from growing beyond the small size they've achieved so far? So the biggest ones in the US, 30 million, $13 million, dealing with teenage mothers in, the, in the South Carolina. And the biggest in Europe is about 22 or 23 million dollars dealing with the absorption of, of immigrants. The average is about $3 million. So that's more. What has prevented them from growing bigger is first of all, the absence of somebody to pay when the outcomes are achieved. If governments doesn't, doesn't want to do that. So governments have been slow to move. We haven't had independent outcomes funds of a billion dollars as we're trying to set up now for education in Africa and the Middle East. If we can get big outcome funders in place where the government finally begin to understand 
that if they only pay for the results achieved and expect investors to fund the NGOs and businesses that are delivering social improvements, that this opens the door to innovation, brings more capital to experiment with and to scale up, and they only pay when it's worthwhile, which is when the results have been achieved. You know, if we manage to persuade them, that would be a major step forward. In the absence of that, we have to create independently managed professional outcomes funds, such as I describe in the book for the area of education. So if you don't have to spend months trying to get the outcome payer in place, that saves you a lot of time. On the other side is the raising of the money. Now we're beginning to see UBS and Bridges Ventures raising the first $100 million plus education outcomes, so education impact bond uh, fund. So that will save a lot of time. And that the process of standardizing the agreement, which could be on blockchain, it becomes the third factor to reduce. Now, when venture capital started, people said the same thing. You have the venture capitalists with their money. You have the entrepreneur with, you know, with their, their plans. And you have the investors in the venture capital fund. It's all too complicated and you're bound to lose your money. Mm. We're in the same place at the moment with impact bonds. But what's interesting about them is that they enable a nonprofit to raise money like a business. If they can improve the social life, the lives of prisoners or the uneducated or whatever, they get paid according to that. And if they pay a decent return, they can raise more money like a, you know, like a, a business would. Yeah. I, what I found in the experience that I had, and I don't think is uncommon in the, in the INGO sector from the kind of my peers and, and colleagues in that space is there's a, there's still a mindset shift that has to happen. There's just a, there's a different lexicon, a different way of thinking about tackling problems between the private sector and the charitable sector, the for-profit and the nonprofit sector. And so I talked about it in the organization as we were experimenting with a lot of these new models around building synapses. You've got A, so A, the people have to get their heads around these new concepts and the terminology. And then B, you've got groups within an organization like a large INGO that historically haven't worked together to start to to engage and, and connect. And that's what do you think about that process? Do you think the charitable sector writ large, and, and I'm talking about the service kind of delivery organizations, is that what's going to help speed that along? Because it does feel like it's a pretty it's a pretty big shift that has to happen. Yeah, shifts in mindset precede shifts in paradigm, and it sometimes takes quite a while to overcome the forces of the status quo's inertia. But something comes along that spurs it. And in the case of the social sector, it could be that as impact thinking and impact measurement begins to spread across the business and the investment world, those responsible for foundations begin to realize 
that if they want to be accountable for the proper use of the philanthropic money they have received and the tax benefits that they get, then they too have to measure their impact and show that they have been delivering improvement in people's lives and, and, and then the improvement of the planet. So it may be that impact measurement comes first. Mm. And then with the impact measurement comes the deployment of part of the grant portfolio on a pay-for-success basis, either by investing through PRI in impact bonds or by being the outcomes funder and simply saying, I'm happy to pay when you've achieved the result. Do you see the work that's being done on impact-weighted accounts applies obviously, prim- or, well, hopefully I'm right about this, primarily to large, big business, publicly traded companies. Do you see any of the lessons being learned there? And let's, as we establish those standards in terms of how you quantify impact, are some of that going to be transferable, do you think, to the charitable sector in terms of the work? Not just to the charitable sector, but to small and medium-sized companies too, which will Mm -hmm. have a simplified form of, of impact accounting. Absolutely. I think impact transparency is going to be like gap accounting was. Everybody has to do it. You can do it in a simplified way, but everybody has to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. I'm being conscious of time here because we've got a little bit of time left. I, I, I want to mention that you, there's a really one of my favorite parts of the book is the you know, kind of nine steps that ever you think kind of government should do that can, first of all, you I think you you do a great job at the end of summarizing here are the things that each of the stakeholder groups, investors, philanthropists, entrepreneurs, big business and government can be doing to further the impact revolution. So that's a highlight of the book. But maybe I'll pause on the, in, when you're talking about governments as a stakeholder group, you talk about these kind of nine steps that yeah. the governments could take to move along that re- revolution. Don't I don't expect you to walk through all nine of them, but maybe touch on one or two of the big things that you yeah. think governments need to do. No, thank you for asking that question, because it's very important for government now to begin to get its own you know, program in this area into place. The most important thing government can do is to mandate impact transparency and bring this generally accepted impact principle, as we've talked about. The next most important is to appoint ministers who are responsible for developing the impact ecosystem in the country. Like we've had in the United States, measures like uh, CRA, which have shifted banking in the direction um, of uh, underserved communities, you know, stopping the redlining taken, taken place. Now we're into a much more developed ecosystem that is required to take all of this impact effort to scale. And what we found in the UK is when the government appointed the minister that was responsible for it, and we found the same in places like Brazil and, and, and Portugal, all of a sudden the government begins to think in a structured way. So appointing a minister who is in charge of impact makes a huge difference. They promote the idea, they popularize it, 
They help to implement outcomes funds, as we were talking, they provide tax incentives, social impact funds, and maybe even corporate pay for success. France is a good example of a very dynamic minister, Olivia Greg, who is doing, who is doing um, just that. And the third thing is to bring this whole notion of efficient government spending into a different focus. The focus of, we want the data, we want the evidence of results being achieved. And if we don't have it sufficiently upfront, then we should shift to pay for success and bring investors in to provide the funding. If we got governments to do those three things, that would really shift our economic practice. That's great. And maybe last question for you here. I've got two, but we probably won't have time to get both of them. Do you, how do you look at the, the argument that we've got massive wealth inequality, there's very few, fewer and fewer individuals controlling the vast majority of wealth. And there is an argument to be had. I, you know, I think, I don't know if you've read Winners Take All, where are we effectively, is impact investing allowing us to maintain the status quo without seemingly change things without actually changing things? And you, you know, will impact this impacted revolution help address some of this massive wealth inequality that we're seeing? Or is it just going to allow the wealthy to continue to profit off the solution to you know, the problems that exist out there? The biggest guarantee that it isn't that it's impact transparency mm -hmm. because you can then judge for yourself. You, right. you don't have to speculate about it. You can judge whether a company is delivering net positive impact or net negative impact. And the notion of traditional philanthropy that you make your money during your career and you don't care how more or less, and then you give it you know, you give it away philanthropically and you might give it away in ways that satisfy your vanity or, you know, your pet ideas. It's completely overshadowed by the notion that the whole economic system through impact transparency begins to provide solutions to the social and environmental problems we have rather than creating problems which governments have to thank us to remedy. That's great. That's wonderful. Sarani, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and be on the podcast. Such a great honor to, to get to hear your thoughts and be able to ask you questions directly. So thank you very much. And maybe someday down the road, we'll have you on again. I'd, I'd love to meet you, David. Thank you very much indeed for a very thoughtful conversation. Thank you. All the best. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd be incredibly grateful if you left a review on iTunes. And uh, heads up, we're now available on most audio platforms, which includes iTunes, but also Spotify, Google, Overcast, you name it. And also can now use Siri to listen to the podcast by saying, hey, Siri, play the Impact Investing Podcast. Here's the Impact Investing Podcast. Yeah, just like that. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast.